Welcome to the Inside Events Podcast, brought to you by Swapcard. There's no better time to have exclusive conversations with the industry professionals who are reshaping the events industry. We're bringing you inside knowledge from industry leaders. Let's get started with your host, Megan Powers. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Inside Events Podcast by Swapcard. Our show today is going to be a good one. We're taking a break a little bit from talking about online and hybrid events specifically, which has been dominated conversation, obviously, for the last eight months or so. I'm Megan Powers with Powers of Marketing. And for those who don't know, I host a marketing podcast called Making a Marketer, where I have lots of impressive and diverse guests. So you can find me over there talking about all things marketing. I also want to share Evolve 2.0 is coming up. So Swap Cards three-day conference is going to be in February, the 23rd to the 25th. It'll be focused on virtual and hybrid events with sessions, roundtables, networking, a job board. You can register and get more information on that at evolve.swapcard.com. And that link will also be in the show notes, of course. Okay, our show today, we're talking advocacy and resiliency of independent show owners with David Audre from SISO. Welcome, David. Good morning. Thank you very much, Megan. I'm excited for this topic. All right, let me give you his bio. David is executive director of the Society of Independent Show Organizers and CEO and partner of Exposition Development Company Incorporated having more than 27 years of exhibition management experience in many different markets david has remained focused on delivering leading events in the markets he's served through the delivery of compelling content outstanding marketing outreach and working with the most reliable and competent partners some of his specialties are excellence in exhibition management new show launches revitalizing established shows international business development and building and training phenomenal staff teams love it Okay, so tell us a little bit about how the organization came to be and who are some of your member organizations? Certainly. SISO was founded uh, 30 years ago this year, actually. Funnily enough, it would have been a a nice celebration if we had actually been in person. It was founded uh, by a dozen independent show organizers. An independent is a euphemism for profit. And the reason at the time was it was founded here in the U.S., but is now a global organization. But 30 years ago, the vast majority, and I'm talking probably 90% plus of trade shows in the U.S. market at the time were owned and run by nonprofit associations, therefore non-taxpaying organizations. And the founders of SISO at the time thought that there were issues affecting the for-profit organizers that weren't necessarily being addressed by organizations around at the time. And so they got together and started SISO as a small group. It has built from those, uh, those original 12 founders to uh, almost 200 companies uh, worldwide that uh, are part of SISO as a global organization. Those members include the vast majority of the very largest companies. When you start at the top of the list with Informa, Reed Exhibitions, the Clarions, the Conexposiums, the Tarsuses, the Emeralds, the Diversifieds, and keep on going down the list, they're all members of SO. When we say 200 companies, there's a few billion dollar companies in, the, in that mix. And then it comes down to the more mid-sized companies and, and small entrepreneurial companies like my own. My partner and I own Expo Devco, and we're also uh, a member of SISO as well as running the organization. Are there any corporations, the oracles and the whatevers of the world that belong? 
No, uh, okay. we say SISA is a very exclusive uh, club, shall we say? It's the we purely only allow members that are where their primary business is that of owning and, and of managing trade shows, conferences. Okay. So the, the corporate event organizers, the Microsofts and the Salesforces of this world, while they produce big events, that's not their business. That's not who they are. Same with the supply side. We have tremendous support from the main service partners, service and venue partners and things out there that are our mainstay of sponsors for our own events. But as far as membership's concerned, it's purely the organizers and they have to be for-profit organizers. So the large associations out there are not members either. Gotcha. Okay. So I went pretty deep in your work history. I see that you have stockbroker in your background. <laughs> so I'm curious if that, <laughs> did that work prepare you for the ups and downs of this industry? I started my career after school, actually, in the financial software industry. I, I ended up in the software business back in the 80s when it was very new in terms of implementing software in individual companies. And, and I ended up actually owning a software company in Europe. I, I grew up in Europe and owned a small software company there. I sold that and I ended up moving to the States. And I had some business plans that didn't follow through as well as I expected. And, and in 1989, which those of you will remember that far back, was not a great year for the stock market. Um, That's what I, I thought when I saw it. I was like, whoa. I decided I'd try my hand at it. And in the US, I was living in Houston. And I, and I managed to get my Series 7 license in a week. And, wow. and I worked for a, a small, very risky stock house. And I learned a lot in that year. I learned that I didn't want to be in the stock brokerage business and in the, all the investment business. And I also learned how very much to not pay any attention to people hanging up the phone or saying no. So it taught me a lot of very strong sales skills, but I definitely don't want to be in the investment business. I love it. And Smarty too, man, like that like series seven in a week. That's impressive. All right. I want to talk advocacy for a little bit that the meetings and events industry in general hasn't had tremendous visibility on the Hill. So can you tell our listeners about the advocacy work that SISO and the industry have been doing this past year? Certainly. First of all, SISO, obviously our membership's global. So we're, we're actively involved with a lot of our colleagues and partners in, in many markets. But certainly the most challenging market, honestly, has been the U.S. And we at SISO in the past were members of the Exhibitions Mean Business Coalition. We were members of the Meetings Mean Business Coalition. We were members of the U.S. Travel, a board seat with them. We're part of the Events Industry Council. We've been actively collaborating with many groups and entities around the industry for many years. And there's been activities such as Exhibitions Day and Global Exhibitions Day that we support and participate in to get visibility. But the reality is that once COVID hit, it became very clear that everybody and every industry was going to be begging for help and assistance from all the governments. And frankly, the US government was woefully unprepared to help many of them. And when you're dealing with situations where the restaurant industry is basically closed down, the hotel industry, travel industry, and so many others were basically closed down, to build up visibility for what is a huge industry overall, the exhibitions industry, but individually, we're not as visible as many. And the, one of the first things that happened in March is uh, Freeman and Bob Priestek, the CEO of Freeman, is a tremendous advocate and uh, supporter of the industry and decided to launch the Go Live Together initiative. 
And they came to us at SISO first to, to help underwrite a plan and develop a plan to build an advocacy effort specifically around the exhibitions and conferences industry here in the US. And, and we did, the SISO board uh, stepped up and provided half of what turned into a half million dollar fundraise for the advocacy work that we were dedicating wow. directly here in the US. And that funded the hiring of a very top-notch lobbying firm in, the, in Washington DC, Brownstein Hyatt, bringing on some PR communications people to facilitate the basically the raising of awareness and visibility of the industry and where it needs to be, with the powers that be. And we have taken on a lot of efforts on the advocacy front. We've also been doing a lot of communication out there. It's a frustrating process, to be honest with you. And we were starting way back in the pack. It's hard to have a seat at the table when you don't even have an open door to get in the room. And so we've had to do a lot of work to get to that point, but we have had dozens of conversations with, with legislators. We've been involved in crafting some of the language and some of the efforts and some of the bills that are being proposed on the Hill. And more importantly, we're also focusing and being able to bring together a lot of the industry to have conversations on a localized basis, because for our industry, the, getting events active again is basically a state and city based initiative. We have events actually happening in some cities like Orlando and Dallas and, and Atlanta. We have, but on a small scale, but we don't have federal mandates. We don't have federal direction. We as an industry have developed many great safety guidelines and, and protocols. And we've worked with groups like ISSA that have launched the GBAC star certification for venues. So we know as an industry that we can run safe events it's communicating that that plan to the powers that be that is uh, part of the challenge. So let's talk a little bit about that in terms of the trade show floor and what kind of things are being put in place. I heard of an event that occurred a couple of, of months ago that had a trade show element and that there weren't as many safety protocols in place in terms of protecting the exhibitor or the participant. So what are some of the things that y'all are doing that you're recommending that they do on the trade show floor? You've got two aspects, the venues themselves, and I say most of the major venues in the US, for example, and in many parts around the world now, have undertaken there to achieve the GBAC star certification. And uh, ISSA is the Safety Association, Sanitation Association, and they've done a tremendous job developing that, that plan and that certification. And so for, that ensures that the venue itself is putting in place the right sanitation protocols and processes to keep the venue clean. And some of those involve obviously the routine cleaning and extra cleaning of surfaces and, and touch places, having no touch doors and things like that in place where possible. And so from the, for, first of all, you've got the venue itself. Second of all, then as organizers, we can do several things. One of the differences between business meetings and events, i.e. trade shows and conferences, compared to the, the mass gatherings that the CDC and so forth have lumped us in with, unfortunately, in, in the past, is that, first of all, we know who's coming. We, we're registering everybody that comes to our events. We can actually schedule and space those out over a three-day event, for example. Whereas you go to a sporting event or a concert, they're shoving tens of thousands of people through turnstiles in a very short window of time to shit seat themselves very close together. On a traditional trade show floor, you might have a 100,000 or 500,000 square foot convention center with exhibits spaced out throughout the building. And the density of the occupancy of that venue 
can easily be no more dense than walking through a grocery store or a shopping mall. And one of the things we've been talking to a lot of the cities and states about is that whole occupancy. Because the, the benefit we have, again, is that every single venue we use, whether it's a hotel ballroom, a meeting room, or a convention center, an exhibit hall, has already been certified in terms of safe occupancy by the local relevant authority. So we already know what a safe number of people is from a pure safety perspective in a particular building. So if you then want to look at it from a safety when dealing with COVID, it's a matter of spacing that out. So if a 100,000 square foot exhibit hall has been certified for X number of people in a normal environment, simply saying, okay, then to provide more spacing, let's to make that 50%, let's make that 30%, whatever that is deemed to be the appropriate number to provide safe uh, spacing and no, not crowding, that's a much easier thing to do because the, all the spaces are already certified. And it certainly makes a lot more sense than simply saying you can have 50 people or 250 people or 1,000 people because those issues right now make no sense because when a city says you can only have 50 people together, 50 people in a 400 square foot meeting room is a heck of a lot different than 50 people in a 200,000 square foot exhibit hall. And you can have 300 people on a metal tube in the sky, but you can't have 100 people in 10,000 foot space. It's crazy. Yeah. So interesting. So I, I like that the idea, I, I see that being scheduled as being the thing, because I think a lot of people would think, oh, if you're just running it as you, people picture you're just roaming the halls and doing whatever you want. So part of it is compliance, right? By the participants, then well, like walking the right direction and being on time and all of those kinds of good things. See, back in the spring, three of the largest organizers in the world, Informa, Reed and Clarion, got together and developed the, the basis of the All Secure guidelines that uh, has been endorsed by uh, CISO and AEO in the UK. And in fact, actually, the UK government has even accepted it and endorsed it as their approved plan for holding safe meetings uh, in the UK. Those guidelines were developed with the idea of being able to manage the flow of people in and out of a show and all the aspects that need to go on. And of course, the basics are, as we said, basic sanitation uh, touch points and cleaning and that sort of thing. Mandatory masks, for example. Unfortunately, our federal government here in the US has done a lousy job of actually mandating things that we know are needed to provide safety, and that's mask wearing. So most organizers are mandating masks be worn at all events. That's, what, that's the biggest number one issue that can ensure the, the lack of infection spread. You then look through all the other guidelines that have gone through there. And the idea is, again, you may even have a situation where you've got a three-day trade show. The reality is most trade shows, most people don't come for three days. Most of the time, attendees and buyers are coming for a day, maybe a day and a half, maybe two. So you can also schedule people even through that. You could even schedule it so that uh, some people come in one morning, another percentage the afternoon, another percentage the next day. So if you are going to have a large volume and you don't think it will fit within the 40, 50% occupancy of the venue, you can schedule them through over the multiple days. Yeah, we talked about uh, early on in this podcast on our episode within the first few episodes about how Europe had, had just started doing the hosted buyer thing, which in the States, we've had that for quite a while. Our emphasis has been more on education with the trade show element versus in Europe or anywhere outside the US really, where there are large trade shows that are, that's the event. And then if there's education, then that might be on the top of that. So I see that as being, you don't have to be hosted in order to be scheduled, but I see how that is laid out being very similar and would help, I think, show organizers to get that figured out. 
We, as I said, most trade shows in the U.S. have some form of education attached to them, and often case it can be on the show floor, it can be in, in rooms, but it can certainly be spaced out. We know we can set up so that uh, people can sit spaced out and safely. We know that, in, say, in a traditional trade show format, again, if you maintain a low enough density and volume, people can walk around and not be bumping into other people. It can be uh, set up that way. We know that, that exhibitors can set up, instead of having people wandering into booths, getting close to each other, they can set them up so that they are kept in the aisles and not going through. So there's lots of ways we can manage this. We also know, just realistically, the reality is that right now, we're not going to get the sort of volumes of attendance that we got a year ago. We're not going to have as many people coming to our shows. But the reality is that's not necessarily a bad thing. The people that won't come are probably the ones that weren't that valuable to the show in the first place. They probably aren't the ones that were making the biggest buying decisions. And so we can have successful events, which, and at the end of the day, success is very easily defined. Are the exhibitors doing business? Are the attendees finding suppliers? Those criteria can be achieved. For sure. And that's what has made the hosted buyer thing so appealing is that the exhibitor pays to be there and they know they have a guaranteed number of appointments that are at least in some way qualified. You do have situations where people are just trying to fill their schedule, but for the generally speaking, they're looking for a certain thing, audiovisual supplier or whatever. And so that's who they're um, scheduling their appointments with. So anyone who's listened to this podcast before, has heard me say that I wrote my master's thesis on the value of face-to-face -face versus online uh, within the context of trade shows. The solution was a mix of the two, that no one or the other is valuable, but definitely everyone agreed that the face-to-face -face situation is much more valuable in terms of being able to make eye contact, but also to see the products. And it's just such a different experience that I see. I do see trade shows coming back sooner. And I think they have in Asia, haven't they? they come have. back more quickly than the education meeting. Certainly, I mean, China is giving us great hope for the rapid uh, rebuilding of the industry because as soon as China got a grip on managing the spread of the infection, which they did basically by having massive testing and tracing. And they, as a government, managed to clamp down on the infection spread. Since July, we've seen massive resurgence of shows across China. You go to Shanghai, you go to Shenzhen, and they are back-to-back -back shows. And companies like Tarsus and Informa, some of the Western companies that are producing shows over there, are seeing their shows coming back at 80, 90, or 100% or more of their 2019 numbers. And so they're very rapidly coming back. They're very successfully coming back. And when you see the photos and activities, they're busy shows doing a lot of business. But the difference, of course, is that China has done a great job of removing the infection spread. So in a building with 10,000 people, you don't have to worry about getting infected, even though you are required to wear masks and there are safety protocols in place because the infection spread is tiny. Uh, the problem we have right now is, of course, our infection spread is massive. No, for sure. Is there anything specific you can share that exhibitors are doing? Because I, I know some people listening will wonder, are they, is it you can only walk, there's arrows, you can only walk this, this no, there's no, or... you know, no, there isn't. And initially this whole idea of one-way aisles, the grocery stores put them in and, and got rid of them fairly quickly because frankly they don't work and they were fairly ineffective. So even the grocery stores pulled them out. We don't see them at, at trade shows being effective at all. What's effective is sanitation and masks and low density. 
that's what's effective. And that's what we're encouraging. And that's what the uh, industry guidelines are recommending for sure, because that's what will work as we get a grip on this. And of course, we're also looking forward to and and, and the industry and those groups where we've had a, a task force in place for some months now, revisiting those guidelines and, and looking specifically at testing as tools that can help us to build our events back. And so we have great hope that not only will the vaccine start rolling out the, uh, the right now and also start to have major impact over the next six months, but certainly more and, ma- and rapid testing options are becoming much more available and we expect to see a lot more of that. Because if you are going to an event, uh, whether it's a conference for a few hundred people or a trade show, and that people have been tested and they're negative, then there's a lot less risk when you walk in that building anyway. And then if you layer on top, and I think that the medical experts keep talking about the Swiss cheese effect of layering different systems in place, the processes, whether it was masks, cleaning, distancing, testing, when you layer all those different things on top of each other, the risk of, of infection is reduced with every action, extra layer. For sure. Now, would that be testing like outside of registration to, to make sure before they walk in? Or are you going to ask them to show up with proof? Well, of- the, I mean, in an ideal world, the idea of instant testing that's workable and usable for people as they show up is an ideal. And there are multiple tests that are being built and designed and working where you can just blow in a tube or spit in a tube and, and mm-hmm. it can be in results in all, if not instantaneously, certainly within minutes. Those are things that we are actively looking at, at to see how it is. But the issue is more than the test. The test is only one part of the whole process that's a challenge. You have the test itself, but you have to get people to that test first. You have to then implement the actual process of giving that test and then running the test and providing the information. We as organizers certainly don't want to be in the medical business. So we don't want any medical information. I don't want to know anything about you medically. I want to know who you are when you walk in the door and I want to know what you need, but I don't want to know anything medically about you. So there's lots of big companies, the IBMs, the uh, Clears, the Doans of this world that are billion dollar companies looking at this whole infrastructure because it also impacts travel and, and transportation. And so in an ideal scenario, if it's a localized event, certainly we hope to be in a position in the not too distant future where it's easy for people to get a test before they just make a decision to go somewhere. And before I get on a plane, it would sure be comforting if I could get a test and know that I'm not positive before I actually even leave my home or leave on a plane to go somewhere because I don't want to go somewhere and get stuck there in quarantine. Then getting people a test on site becomes a secondary follow-up to that. And that's certainly an ideal. It's certainly where we're trying to get to. But again, nothing's better than masks, sanitation, and distancing. Yeah, I traveled internationally recently and was required to proof of a negative test when I arrived into that country. Now they weren't going to not let me in, but I was going to be asked to quarantine. But that particular country is not, I don't think, really doing a whole lot to enforce anything like that. But also, it has absolutely nothing to do with what happened from when I took that test, taking three flights to get to my destination. There was a whole lot of opportunity for me to get exposed again. So I like that idea of being able to get tested before you go in. Because I do feel like the temperature thing is a little arbitrary. The temperature thing doesn't work. I, I was uh, at an event a couple of months ago in Orlando and took the, uh, took the time to go have dinner at uh, Disney, uh, Disney's uh, dining area there. And they were testing everybody 
that walked into the whole Disney complex for it, and they with just the temperature checks. And I, I asked one of the uh, people doing the temperature checks, I said, okay, you, I'm assuming you guys are testing. And they said, oh yeah, 10,000 people a day, something like that. I said, okay, so how many people have actually failed the test and not been allowed in? And this person said, I haven't seen anybody. So they're testing tens of thousands of people almost every day and they're not catching anybody. So it's, it's not necessarily the best way to do it, especially when we're told that a large percentage are asymptomatic anyway, spreading it. So temperature checking is minimal value. Massive testing is high value, but that's what we need right. governments to do. Yeah, absolutely. So anything about 2021 you want to share with us that you all have in the hopper? I'm awfully hopeful. Mm-hmm. We, for my own business, my partner and I had 11 events scheduled for 2020. We had a couple get off in February and into March and get affected in early March. We then had to cancel eight events for the rest of the year. We've already rescheduled or postponed four of our events that were scheduled for the first few months of 2021 into the summer. So we haven't canceled them, but we've had to postpone them. Our first event uh, we're running is actually going to be SISO's CEO Summit, which is uh, the largest gathering of C-level execs in our industry every year. And we are pretty optimistic about it because I think timing-wise, middle of April for an event for our industry, that's 300 people, is a reasonable target. It's also planned in Florida. So uh, we could actually hold that today if we wanted to in Florida. And then we have uh, some trade shows scheduled in June and July. I feel good about those. I feel optimistic. I think the vaccines will start to have an impact, certainly on confidence. I think that many of the governments around the world, and especially the U.S. government, come the end of January, we'll start to see some change in focus on implementing, hopefully, a lot more mandatory safety protocols and also massive testing, which is what we need. And I think that will build a a higher confidence level. And we can, hopefully, we will also at the same time show that we can run the safe events and they'll listen to us and enable us to do. Yeah, definitely. Being able to get tested, regardless of whether you have symptoms, is super important because of the asymptomatic element. And I, I ran into that. I had to pay out of pocket in order to get my test before I left because even my doctor said, sorry, we can't because I don't know if there's just not enough. But I have seen that the saliva test that, that Yale has created is supposed to be like 10 bucks a piece. And if you take two of them and they both come negative and 99% sure that you don't have it, which I see that being super valuable. And those are the, yeah, those are the types of rapid testing that we're looking at as well, because there are a lot of these that are in the under $10 range that uh, are being uh, made available. And and say, we expect that to exponentially grow over the next few months. And as you say, if you get to the point where people can start taking these a couple of times a week and therefore when people are going to events, going out, doing whatever, they can have confidence that they are around people also that are negative. It will rebuild business much faster. No question. All right. So how can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about SISO and the work you all are doing? Well, SISO is uh, easy, SISO.org. It's easy to find out about our association and our events. Also, I, I highly recommend you go to the golivetogether.org website, which has all of the information about the advocacy work we as an industry, which includes all of our colleagues from the venues, from the supply side, from the contractors, and, and say all aspects of the industry are working together on this effort. We also have our advocacy work summaries there and resources. And if you happen to have a, a congressman as your neighbor, please take advantage <laughs> of using the, using the materials we have to share with them. I love that. Yeah. And all that'll be in the show notes. So we'll include that for sure. So everyone um, can get to it easily. So 
as I sign off, this is my final episode hosting the Inside Events podcast. In the year that was 2020, SwapCard has a new staffer that's coming on board that who is a podcaster. And so he's going to be hosting. Uh, he'll be at the helm moving forward. But I very much enjoyed my time with all of our guests and all of our listeners. I wish everyone health, safety, and a much better 2021 moving forward. Thanks all. Tweet at us with the hashtag InsideEvents and be sure to subscribe to get each episode as they drop.